Well, good morning. It has been a few weeks since I last preached, so I'm really looking forward to opening God's Word this morning with you. It is uh, it's a great privilege. It's always a great privilege to have God's Word in our hand. And for those who get the opportunity to preach to us over the summer, for each of them it is a great privilege to stand before this church body and to say, thus says the Lord. So as we prepare to open up to Psalm 4, where I'll be preaching today, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we are, as we just celebrated, we are the recipients of great grace. Jesus, you have done for us what no one else could do. And now we stand and we sit here as sons and daughters of the King of Kings, of the Lord of the universe. You have blessed us beyond what we deserve. You are a holy and awesome and amazing God. And as we gather around your word today, Lord, we come to you to hear from you. We come to you to do what you say. Lord, give us hearts and ears that are tender. Turn us from our own ways and our own ideas that we would respond to what your word teaches today. Lord, help me to say what I ought and keep me from saying what I ought not to distract from your word and your message for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 4 is a psalm written by David. And we don't know many details about it because it doesn't give us a whole lot, but it has four basic parts. And so we're going to look today, as we look into Psalm 4, at four different sections as we go through the psalm. As we get into it, I want, I want to introduce it with a, a question for you. Have you ever had a time where you felt overwhelmed? No, no, not me, no, I've never been overwhelmed. Maybe the others have, no. We've all been overwhelmed. There have been moments, maybe it was during COVID, maybe it's post-COVID with a war going on in Ukraine, maybe it's economically. There are times and places where we say, I don't know if I can handle what you've put in front of me, God. I don't know if I can handle that there's no vehicles to sell on my lot. I don't know if I can handle that my child is struggling educationally. I don't know if I can handle this new relationship that I'm in now. Hope so, think so but I am not sufficient for the task you have put before me, God. Any of you ever feel that way? I don't know what's happening for me physically in the next three years. I don't know what's happening for my mother in the next three years. We all, at times, feel beyond ourselves. And Psalm 4 is written by David at a moment when he is feeling beyond what he can take. 
And do you know who he turns to? Do you know where he looks in his moment of need? To the Lord. Psalm 4 is about the Lord being our support, the Lord being our safety, the Lord being the one that we can come to. Now, if you don't already know that, you haven't been listening. And if you already know that, you probably think, what do I need the sermon for? I already know that I should listen to the Lord. But this is the word of the Lord. This book, the Bible, is God's word. In Psalm 4, God thought we needed this well enough that he put it into Scripture forever so that today, here at Knollwood, we could look again at lessons God taught David over 3,000 years ago. The lesson is still true. It is still good. So when you have your struggle, when you have that moment that you are not able to handle completely on your own, where do you go for strength? David went to the Lord, but sometimes we have other things we rely on. Maybe it's your money. I've got enough in the bank account. I don't have to worry about economic downturns. I'm safe. I'm good. My retirement's settled. Maybe it's family. You know, things may be difficult, but my parents are here. My kids are here. My siblings are here. We're in it together. And you know, together we'll be able to handle whatever. Maybe it's your church family. Maybe it's a specific mentor in your life, or your mom, or your dad, or somebody who has been so instrumental, God has used in your life. And you're thinking, as long as he, as long as she, I'm good. But brothers and sisters, all kinds of things can seem like safety ropes to us, and if they are not the Lord, they will not be sufficient in the storms of life. They will not be. We don't know the specifics of what David's dealing with, but as we get to Psalm 4, verse 1, David talks about this need to cry out to God. So if we turn to verse 1 in our Bibles, let me read it to you, and you'll notice I've got two different related phrases up on the slide. David writes, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. If you didn't catch that, those are petitions. He's crying out, hear me. He's not commanding, you better hear me. He's requesting, Lord, help. Lord, hear me. But he's not doing that from the perspective that maybe God can't hear. He's not wondering if God's able to hear. Think about that logically. If David is worried that God can't hear, why is he crying out? Think about that for a second. Because if God can't hear, crying out, well, let's say that Matt's at home, and his, his cell phone is lost, and like most of us, he doesn't have a landline in the 
house anymore. So he's at his apartment, and he goes, oh, I need to, say, I need to tell Sam something at the church. So he steps on his balcony, he starts yelling, hey, Sam! How fast, Sam, how fast are you going to hear Matt yelling to you from his balcony? You're never going to hear it. You're not going to hear. You're inside the, he's way over. If God can't hear you, why would you cry out to him? The fact that David's crying out, saying, hear me, Lord, is not about whether God can hear. He knows God can hear. That's why he's crying. And it's not about whether God is willing to listen. If you look in the middle of verse 1, he states, you have relieved me in my distress. David's not wondering if God loves him. He's not wondering if God's willing to listen to his prayer. You have relieved me. You have been faithful. When I have cried out in the past, you have loved me and you have heard me. You have relieved me in distress in the past. I know you love me. I know you can hear me. So when I'm crying out, oh Lord, listen, it's not about whether you can or whether you're willing to. The point is, I have this need right now, and I'm saying right now, in my moment, oh, Lord, will you help me? It's a cry for help. Now, before we go on to verse 2, let's look at a couple things in verse 1. And this is very important. Why? Why will God hear David? Because God has not promised to hear every prayer. He actually hasn't promised that. Do you know that if you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord won't hear? Do you realize that's in Scripture? In fact, there's a little phrase there in the first part of verse 1. Hear me when I cry, O God of my righteousness. Let me unpack that for you. Let me explain what's involved in that phrase. God of my righteousness. Now we could from a New Testament perspective, quickly assume, oh, well, that's Jesus, who is God. He's the one who makes me righteous. That's not what David's thinking, though. It's true, but it's not David's thought. David's thought is this. If it wasn't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of my fathers, the creator, the Lord, Yahuwah, if it wasn't for him and his word, If he had not given me precepts and instructions and commandments, I would not know what righteousness is. It is because of who God is and what he has revealed in his word, David, says that I know what righteousness is. So the source, the basis of my knowledge of what's right, you're that source, God. You're the God who teaches me righteousness. You could say it this way. David's theology about God is right. He's worshiping the right God, the creator, the one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who has given us the law. He is saying, you are the God who has taught me what is right. But God of my righteousness is not just a declaration of who he belongs to, who he worships, who has taught him truth, what his theology is, what his religious belief system is, that's not all of it. There's a practical element to righteousness. 
To be righteous is not simply to know truth. You actually have to do something. It's inherent in the word. And so the phrase, God of my righteousness, both identifies who David is talking to, the one who has revealed truth, what is right and what is wrong to David, and it also includes, you are the God who has shown me the path and you enable me to walk the path. You help me to do what is right, what is good, to say no to sin. So David comes and he's crying out to God, hear me, Lord, have mercy on me and hear my prayer because David has a right relationship with God. Now, before we apply this to ourselves, we need to switch gears a bit because David is under the old covenant. As we just celebrated, Jesus came to make a new covenant. David, all he has received from God is that God has said, this is the path, walk in it. Trust me, believe me, follow the commands I've given you. David does not have all of the information that we now have because God revealed more of the Bible after he died. And we now know clearly, not only does God love righteousness, but we are not able to meet God's perfect standard which is why God sent a substitute, why God sent his son, why God had Jesus die in my place and in your place, because we could never be perfect, and we needed someone to take our guilt from us. So the difference between us and David here is, David is crying out to God, knowing what God has revealed, but not knowing all of it. We now come, same relationship, is by faith in Christ, so we believe what God has done, and we now have the same standing David had. He was accepted before Christ died because he was faithful in believing what God had revealed to that point. We are now accepted after Christ has died, because we believe what God has revealed to this point, the details about the cross. The same standing, though. In other words, because David had a right relationship with God, when he cried out, Lord, hear, God would hear. If you are trusting in Jesus here right now, when you cry, oh, Lord, hear, God will hear you. If you are trusting, he does. Almighty God, he hears your cry. Like, like a mom or a dad in the middle of the night, and that little one-year-old starts to make some noise, and somehow you just hear that noise. It just, it just gets in that ear, and you wake up, whoop, someone's crying. In the same way, God is tender and he cares about you and he cares about me in our need. He hears. Now, if you are not trusting in Jesus, you do not know. God has not said he will hear your cry. Friend, 
why? Why would you give up having Almighty God be a Heavenly Father to you, to hear your cry in those moments that will come in life? Why would you give that up? So if you are not certain, before you leave here today, I challenge you and I encourage you, make certain that you know that you're trusting in Jesus so that when you cry, like David cried in his need, when you cry in those moments of need, God will hear you. So verse one is about David saying, Lord, I'm in a difficult moment. I need your help again. With a confidence that God Almighty is listening. Now we get to verses two and three, we shift gears. And there's a little bit of a, a difficulty in verse two. Some of your translations may not agree with mine because there's a bit of a question mark about how to handle the, the questions in verse two, what exactly is being looked at. It's not totally clear, but I'm gonna tell you how I see it. And um, if you see it differently, you can talk to me later if you want. But you don't feel that you have to. Verses 2 and 3 fit together like a package. In verse 1, David is talking to God, but in verses 2 and 3 now, he's talking to others about God. Okay, so there's a change in focus. And verse 2 starts with two questions. How long? Again, how long? The questions are saying, when are you going to wake up? How long are you going to keep making such a foolish choice? Let's read the questions. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Now again, some of your translations might change a little bit, especially that second part, but it's the same basic idea, seeking lies, seeking falsehoods. And then there's that word salah. Do you see that word? Most of your translations have salah. That simply means instrumental playing. We're just going to take a pause instrumentally, and we're going to think about what was just said. So in other words, let's reiterate it. Let's go back over it. Let's look at verse 2 again, because we're supposed to think about this for a bit. So what is David asking in these questions to these people who are around, who are listening? How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? And you go, boy, I'm not really sure what he's talking about. It's poetic. He could be talking about this. He could be talking about that. It's not totally clear. I think, 57% certain, I think he's talking about idolatry. That turning David's glory, that's the Lord, into shame, that's an idol. How long, instead of going to God when you have a problem, how long will you love worthlessness? How long will you seek faithlessness or falsehood or a lie? Brothers and sisters, it is a sad and confusing thing that though we know God is all-powerful and he loves us, he gave his son for us too often, when we have trouble, the first thing we do is not what we see David do in verse 1. I'm having some health issues. Who am I going to call? Oh, the doctor. No, not Ghostbusters. The doctor. 
Well, what about God? I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to the doctor, but who is your primary hope? There's a sickness going around. Have you ever heard of COVID? Not sure what I should do. Who should you be trusting it first of all? Well, not the vaccine, but God. There's, there's financial difficulty going on. There's a, there's a, my property values are starting to go down. I don't know if I have my retirement all set. Who should I talk to? My financial investor, my banker, or, or maybe, just maybe, we should talk to God. All too often, I find myself, and you probably find yourself in verses two and three. Life gets hard, and though we know and we believe God is all-powerful and he loves us and he's on our side, in the middle of the struggle, God is not our first choice. Have you been there? And here's David saying, how long, sons of men, how long are you going to turn my glory to shame? How long are you going to love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Guys, it doesn't work. There is one who is capable and able to take care of us in times of trouble. There is one who is able, and he's not money. And he's not knowledge. And he's not relationships. Hey, be married is great, right, Garf? But relationships aren't enough. It's God. Look at how David responds in verse 3 as he says, he's asked these two hard questions, and now he says, to finish my point here, I want you to know something, guys. You're so quick to go to someone else for help, something else in difficulty. Know this. The Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. Now, him who is godly, that phrase, it's just like David talked about earlier with God being his righteousness. The one who is godly is not the one who seeks the idol. Clearly, the ones he's talking to in verse 2 are not being godly. The one who is godly loves God, puts his or her trust in God. Like we saw in verse 1, God of my righteousness, proper belief system, who is the true God, well, the godly worship the true God, but the godly also, like in righteousness, have to have proper action. Their faith bears fruit. And those who truly love God and put their trust in God, David is calling them the godly. He says, look what God does. If you are trusting in God, if you're trusting in Jesus, if you are seeking to obey him, God would call you godly. And this is what God told David, that is true. God sets apart for himself him who is godly. Literally, God has a special chair right here on his right hand. And he says, this is reserved for people like Dave DeHaan, who's godly. He seeks to love me. This, this is reserved for Dave Thorne. He's trusting in me. He loves me. He's trying to obey. God has set apart 
Those of us who know him, who are godly, he set us apart. He's given us his name. He's chosen us and he delights in us. And when we cry, what does he do? What was that? Louder. He hears us. Verse 2, people are looking for all kinds of things to protect them. And David is saying, guys, you're being foolish. God is set apart for himself, the godly. And then in the second part of verse 3, he says specifically, what does that mean? It means God will hear when the godly cry. God will hear, Dave says, when I call to him. And God will hear when you call to him, if you are godly. So in the first half of the psalm, verse 1 and then verses 2 and 3, David has reiterated a truth. God hears the righteous. God hears the godly. And the opposite is sadly also true. God does not hear the ungodly. God does not listen to the ungodly. So it raises this question that we need to ask ourselves seriously, which group am I in? Now, if you don't need God, do you think you can handle the problems of life without God? You say, I don't care, I'm going to do my thing. It's too bad for you. That will not turn out well. That will not turn out for you. But if you realize that you are not sufficient for life and you need help, you need to choose the route that only God will help. That is the godly. As we move to verses 4 and 5, we get to the third part. So David says, Lord, hear me. And then he responds with confidence, the Lord will hear me. Now we move to the third part of the psalm. There's a major question mark in the text about what's being said here. Verses 4 and 5 are different than everything else in the passage. In verses 1 and 6 to 8, it's David talking with the Lord. Read verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You, God, have relieved me in my distress. You, God, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. David's talking with God. Let me read verse 6 and 7 and 8. Same thing. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up your covenant, your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increase. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Huge. It's all about David talking with God. In verses 2 and 3, David's talking to the sons of men about God. How long, you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. But verses 4 and 5 David's not in there. Verses 4 and 5 are not declarations of truth. They're not questions. They're commands. Someone is making a bunch of commands in verses 4 and 5. The question is, is David giving commands to those he's writing the psalm to? Is God giving commands through David to those he's writing the psalm to? Or is God giving commands to David? Now, some of you, you may have the ESV, and you might notice that verse 4 has the plural, meditate within your hearts on your beds. 
Sounds like a plural group. My translation, New King James, has the singular. Meditate within your heart on your bed. So there's a bit of a discrepancy even in the Hebrew text about what's the best way to translate this. So I'm going to follow the text in front of me. That's what I'm going to do. And I think the best way to understand this is David has been crying out, Oh Lord, hear. And I will trust you. I think four and five is God responding to David. You know, there's a, there's a discrepancy here, and it could be God talking to people through David. But I think, personally, I think this is God giving this answer to David. David's just been frustrated, both with these men he talks about in verse two, and the, the difficulty that's the basis of him coming to God, saying, Lord, help, I have a problem. It's probably people-related, because most of our problems are people-related. You ever notice that? Or they're people we're related to, which is people related to. Anyhow, okay, that, that's the only joke you're going to get, guys, if I like that one. Okay, so, be angry and do not sin. Let's look at this from the perspective that David is talking, uh, God is talking to David. He's been lo- saying, Lord, help. Lord, hear. And God says, let me give you a message, David. L- let me encourage you. I know you're frustrated, whether it's the people who aren't listening or whether it's the problem you're going through. I know it's made you angry. Do you realize you can be angry without sinning? Now, the wrath of man rarely works the righteousness of God. Normally, when we get angry, we sin. Most of the time, most of us as parents, we readily admit this to ourselves, not to our kids, right? (laughs) You know, I get angry with you. I I try not to punish you when I'm angry because when I'm angry, bad things happen. So, God says, you're right to be angry, but do not sin. Here's what you need to do. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. And then that word again, salah. I want you to stop and think about this, David. I know you're frustrated. Whether it's the situation you're in or whether these people that should know better and they aren't trusting in me and you just want to change the situation, I want you to trust in me. So often when we see a problem, we rush to fix it. True? It's not just men that do this, though men have a reputation doing this a lot. But it's not just men, April. Women do this too. We rush in to fix things. And God says to David, if you really believe me, if you really think I'm faithful and able and capable, I want you to trust me. I want you to rest and be still. I want you to meditate about who I am and my ability to handle the problems of life. Because sometimes what we do is we meditate on, on the problems of life. And how am I going to do this? How am I going to fix that? Where am I? How am I? We have all these questions, and we're meditating on the problems, and we're not meditating on the solution. Who is God? And David, God says, I want you to be still. I want you to meditate on your bed where you're alone and there's no distractions. I want you just to stop and think about who I am. And that's what allows you to offer a sacrifice of righteousness. What is a sacrifice of righteousness? 
Well, it's not clear, but the last part of verse five helps us understand what he's looking at in this verse. The sacrifice of righteousness is putting your trust in the Lord. Is God happy when we bring a sacrifice? Old covenant, remember, old covenant. Is God happy when you bring an offering? Yes, under the old covenant, bringing a sacrifice is a very good thing. But God is more, has always been more interested in your obedience to him than your sacrifice. God has always been more interested in your trust in him than in your sacrifice. I want to see that you truly love me and trust me, not that you come to church every Sunday. Do do we understand this? David, God says, you're crying out to me for help. You believe I can help you. That's why you're crying. So put it into practice. Wait for me to help. You've asked for my help. It doesn't mean you can't do anything else. But when you ask me for help, wait, rest, and let me help. Oh, it's so easy to pray. And then we immediately decide, well, God hasn't done it yet, so I guess I better get to work. I do. You do too. No, God says, the sacrifice of righteousness, the thing that I look upon and say, oh, that makes me glad. The thing that gives our eternal and holy heavenly Father joy Sacrifice of righteousness? It's when we put our trust in him. We say, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do what he says. Even if there are negative consequences, let come what may. I'm going to think God is, hey, he's, he's capable of this situation. He can handle it. And that leads to his final point. So in verses 6 to 8, which is the whole thrust of the psalm, He's been saying, I'm going to cry out to, to the Lord for help, and the Lord will hear my cry. I'm going to trust in the Lord because the Lord is the one that gives us safety. Look at verses 6, 7, 8. His last point that God is the one who will keep us safe. And that comes especially in verse 8. One more time in verse 6, he introduces the, the group of people who are doubting. God's capacity to help. And they're looking for something else. And he says, there are many who say, who will show us any good? And in the context of this psalm, they're doubting God's ability to do exactly what David's been saying. Will God take care of you in your time of need? Well, the question of verse 6 seems to say, no. Who is there who could help us? Who is there who could show us any good? And David's answer is, guys, the very thing I've been trying to say God is the one who will show you good. So David responds to the question with the second part of verse 6, and he says, The Lord, the Lord, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Who will show us good? The Lord will. Now, the phrase, the light of your countenance, it comes from the fact that most of us have less hair on the front of our head than the back. Most of us. 
There are some exceptions. Some guys have very little in both places. Um, some people have quite a bit in the front as well, but most of us have less hair on the front of our face than on the back, and what that means is, if you haven't noticed this, skin reflects light. Hair doesn't really. So when you're actually looking at someone, the light reflects off their face, and there's more shining, more light than there is when you're not talking to them. He's saying, Lord, pay attention to us. Look at us. Give us your attention. This idiom is used throughout the Old Testament, talking about God looking at, paying attention to people in a positive way. The light of your countenance is a good thing. So Lord, give us your attention. Lord, some are thinking, who will take care of us? And David says, Lord, you're the one. Will you look on us? Will you hear us? Will you help us? Verse 7, David talking in agrarian society is trying to express the joy that this produces for him. The fact that Almighty God, the King of the universe, hears me when I call. He says, what's, a, what's something I could use that would be just a... a I know. A lot of us worry about what we're going to eat. A lot of us like what we do eat. Sometimes you can tell how much we like what we eat. But however that works, David says, when we get a good harvest, you know, there's extra food. <laughs> the corn, the wheat, the, the, the fruit trees, whatever, the, the potatoes, more than we're going to use for the year. When you're an agrarian society and you eat what you grow and the grocery store doesn't exist, 3,000 years ago, there weren't too many grocery stores. There were markets, but not grocery stores. You grow what you eat for the year. If you get a bad harvest, it's going to be a tough year. You get a bountiful harvest. Wow. No worries this year. And that's the imagery in verse 7. More than the season that their grain and wine increased, what's more than that? The joy you've put in my heart. He said, Lord, when I think about how you take care of me, you have put gladness, joy, confidence, rest into my heart, more than like a great harvest. To use a not very Christian analogy, you have put more gladness in my heart than when I win the lottery. Yay! Some of you woke up. Okay, good. <laughs> the fact is, David says, God, you give me great joy because you take care of me. In fact, and here's the conclusion of the whole matter, verse 8, I, I've cried out to you. I know you've heard me. You told me to trust you, and I will. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. You know, when you're worried about something, lying down and sleeping is hard to do. Something's going over your head and you just, you can't, you can't rest. Whereas when you decide to stop frittering, frittering your time and worrying about it and we decide to trust God, now you can rest. 
And David says, I'm going to do this. Why am I going to do it? Well, the last part of verse 8 explains why he's willing to stop worrying. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This psalm, Psalm 8, uh, Psalm 4, verse 8. Psalm 4 is about the question, who are you trusting? Life is hard. David said, me, I'm trusting in the Lord. The Lord is our safety, folks. Maybe for you, you're worried about the next two months, two and a half months in our church with Pastor Nate gone. What's it gonna be like? What's gonna happen? God is our safety. Maybe you're worried about this ongoing new variant of Omicron, whatever, X, Y, Z, whatever it is right now. I don't know what it is. It changes every week. Maybe you're worried, though. You know, some of us have health risks, and it is more dangerous for some than others. I'm, I'm not trying to belittle it. For some, it is very dangerous. But who are you trusting in? Is it not God first? Maybe financially things are tight for you. Who are you trusting in? Is it God first? Maybe there are some big life plans you're wondering about. What work to do, who to marry, you know, just small things. And, and you have to ask, who am I going to trust? David said, I'm going to put my trust in you, Lord. You are faithful, you are holy, you are good, you are dependable. Brothers and sisters, will you join me in doing the same? Let's pray. Father, would you help us to trust you? We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't even know what this afternoon brings. But Lord, teach us to trust you, to both be at peace and rest in you because you are our safety. You are more than able. You love us more than we understand and you will accomplish in each of our lives that perfect plan you have already determined. Lord, help us to trust you and show to those around what faith looks like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.